0: The following broadcast was originally aired on June 7th of 2021.
1: She explained to me what it meant to her and these other families that we did those stories. I,
2: I, I don't do this very often. but Stop Alzheimer's, but also reversing uh, Alzheimer's at the early and moderate stage.
0: That's Frank Blathen and Michael Nisarian. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. You can now hear Voices of Experience on KKNW on Tuesday afternoons at 4 o'clock p.m., on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m., and now on KIXI, K-I-X-I-A-M 880, on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Now, I spoke with Michael Nasserian last week about a book he published called, I'm Tired, How to Survive and Succeed in Corporate America. Fascinating interview. It was a very interesting journey for him, which started with his birth in Iran and then migrated to the United States. He eventually wound up at Microsoft, and after a very successful career, he decided to give back. He is an angel investor in about 12 different companies and projects. One of the projects that he is involved in, he's trying to find a cure or at least reverse Alzheimer's disease. This strikes very close to home because both Michael and I had a family member who passed away from Alzheimer's disease. But first, I will be talking with Frank Blethen, the current publisher of The Seattle Times and CEO of The Seattle Times Company. He is a fourth-generation member of the Blethen family which has owned the newspaper since 1896. We talked about some of the Pulitzer Prizes the Seattle Times has been awarded over the years, the challenges of running a newspaper in the Times of social media and so many roadblocks along the way that is plaguing newspapers across the country. How is he viewing the leadership of the Seattle City Council or the mayor? What does he think about the future of Seattle? The and family has been following Seattle for a very, very long time back with my interview with frank blethin in just a moment
2: you're listening to voices of experience with paul casey visit voices of and take a five-minute self-employment quiz that's voices of the higher you score on the quiz the higher your prospects for success one more time visit voicesofexperience.com. all
0: one word Seattle Times has won 11 Pulitzer Prizes since its inception. Are there Pulitzers that you're really most proud of? First one on my watch, the Alaska
1: Valdez oil spill. We just threw everybody at it and figured that's our local story and ended up in some Very significant reform, you know, in terms of the hulls. But there's there's a funny story behind this. When Mount St. Helens blew up, I was actually the advertising manager at the time. The newsroom went to the general manager, Harold Furman, and said, "We need to rent a helicopter so we can get some photographs." And he said, "No, you're not. I'm not going to authorize that." So, meanwhile, the Longview Daily News Hires a, a, a helicopter, sends it up, and wins a Pulitzer Prize for their photographs. And I remember telling Mike Fancher and Alex McLeod when I first became publisher, I said, We will never have another situation where we should be winning a Pulitzer or, or doing that kind of coverage. And the general manager says, no, because you can't rent a helicopter. Then when Alaska Valdez happened, it wasn't even a question. You know, I got a phone call, but I said, you guys do whatever it takes. You know, we really felt good about that one. And I think that actually set a standard uh, and an expectation going forward, which which is, has been carried on. And the other one was the uh, those deaths that were caused by... By the uh, malfunction of that uh, tail rudder of, of Boeing's, I got a I got a phone call from just out of the blue. It was about nine six nine months after after the Pulitzer's had been announced. Woman Brian Achahito was our lead lead reporter, and she had gotten my number from Brian, and she identified herself, and she was the uh, wife of a captain that had been killed in one of those accidents and she was the head of the family survivors group and she just wanted to tell me i actually get choked up every time i tell this story so, um, bear with me she she told me that she explained to me what it meant to her and these other families that we did those stories i don't do this very often but but it just it had such an impact on me uh, and just it was just so reinforced why we do what we do. So I think those two, I mean, I'm proud of all of them, but, the, but those two, I think, are the ones that, you know, uh, personally
0: stand out for me the most. What stands out for me in the Seattle Times over the years is that you haven't been uh, reluctant to take on the sacred cows like Boeing or like like Fred Hutch at certain times. And I'm sure you get a lot of local blowback from that when that happens. But you have stepped up and done it. I've always go, wow, that's really interesting.
1: In fact, there's a long time running joke with the newsroom, which is uh, only half of a joke. Um, But anytime this comes up in the newsroom, you know, I point out to them, I said, well, I'm glad you guys are my friends because because of you, I don't have any. If you're going to do a job like this, and push for the kind of journalism we do there's there's some lonely moments
0: how do you think Seattle is doing if it was a patient, how do you think the checkup would be right now? I read in the Seattle Times this morning that the police are leaving in record numbers. Where are we at? Are you really concerned or just saying, oh well we'll bounce back we've been through this before
1: I'm really c- concerned things go through cycles and sometimes you recover and sometimes you don't and uh, back in the um, Rice Sidron period, when we, you know, I remember, was it uh, Fifth Avenue or Sixth Avenue that was board, we, was called Drug Alley and had all the boards on the on the uh, on the storefronts? You know, we had we had a, a smart city attorney. We, we had a smart mayor. And we had a real principled and smart city council in those days. But I think they saved downtown Seattle. Norse and family stepped into it, which was really significant. And when everybody thought they would bail for Bellevue or somewhere else, you know, there were some developers that got involved. Given the city council we have, given the uh, prosecutor we have, it's just hard to see how we're gonna get out of it. Going to district elections has turned out to be a disaster and school's really out on on the vouchers. You know, so what we end up with is good people don't don't wanna run. It's so acrimonious, it gets so nasty, the loss of civility. A lot of these people just don't care. There's a term going around people talking about the homeless industrial complex in Seattle, which is really true. Compassionate Seattle comes out with a plan we have some questions about about their their plan. Their point is, there is no plan. So I'm really worried.
0: Yeah, it's pretty depressing. I'm not going to ask you to sow favoritism for a mayoral candidate now. Do you think there's someone in there that can lead us out of this mess?
1: No, there's not a Norm Rice in the group. Bruce Harold wanted to really step up to it and take on the controversy. You know, he has some potential. And it's kind of unfair to single him out because I'm not
0: that familiar with all the rest of the candidates. So how about newspapers? Shifting to that for a moment. Let's start with the Seattle Times. How are you doing? We had the first
1: website in the entire country.
0: It was in the mid eighties and it was
1: when Microsoft was just getting getting going and they sent some young guys over here to talk to us about Sidewalk. Do you remember that? Sidewalk vaguely. That was their vision of capturing all of the restaurants trade, and reservations, primarily restaurants, but also thinking of other other uh, entertainment type of venues. They came over. They met with us. We said, well, what do you want from us? And they said, well, we want your content, meaning our restaurant and entertainment content. We said, okay, well, what do we get from you? And they said, you don't get anything. And we said, well, what do you mean? And they said, if you don't give it to us, we're going to put you out of business. We all looked at ourselves and kind of shrugged our shoulders and said, well, that's going, to be, that's going to be interesting. Could, uh, I guess these talks are over. We immediately started saying to ourselves, okay, they've got this grandiose plan. There's umpteen reasons we don't think that it'll ever work, that they're trying to substitute technology for common sense, that they don't, they don't understand all the labor components so that are still going to be, in, be involved in it. But we got to protect ourselves. So we put up what then was called a whiteboard. It was pretty crude, but but was that was our first first test at saying
0: whatever is going on in this technology, we need to be part of it. Will there be a moment when the newspaper, the print, will go away, or maybe not?
1: I, you know, I think there's a there's a possibility that
0: you know within the
1: next I don't know five to ten years, we will see Sunday print
0: only and then Robust Digital. Senator Cantwell is sponsoring some tax credits and grants to local newspapers and broadcasters to the tune of about $2.3 billion. What's your feeling about that?
1: Well, we're all all for it. And during the course of this, our our, our delegation has become very savvy. It's the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. It is the short-term, and short-term is up to five years, the short-term runway newspapers desperately need while well, they work in their business model and well we get a more permanent
0: government subsidy. This is something that is so critical to the future that I believe that these type of efforts, that democracy is riding on this. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more.
1: Anytime I give one of my little, little run-throughs, start out with the uh, you know, fact newspapers are never invest- meant to be investment ponds nor were they meant to be anything but, but local and create the system that could actually support a democracy. You can ever rebuild the system and get it back to this really viable, viable local system across the country. We've got to figure out a way we, this never happens
0: again. And- well, keep up the good fight. You're doing wonderfully. And I'm so encouraged having talked to you today about this. This is uh, really good to hear. And I'd like to uh, vi- revisit this, you know, maybe four or five months from now and see how this is progressing. Well, I'd love to, Paul. We think it's so important to get the message out. So the
1: one thing I should add, because of all the innovation we've done, it may be the, the most dramatic. Our community funding for public service content, which started in 2011 as an experiment, we decided, you know, we were really struggling then. and we just, we, we literally decided if we're going to go out, we're going to go out. Um, it, it, with the bang supporting what we think is the most important thing in our community, which is um, the inequity in public education. So the starting point for us, because it's such a com- complex topic, was to try to stop the defunding of higher education, which had happened for 10 years in a row. Um, and so we created the public service voice, which we bring journalistic standards to it, but we operate it out of the marketing department. Um, we bring the voice. Then I said, can, can I raise money to run, do a greater good campaign to stop the defunding of higher education? I didn't think it would work, uh, but I had to try something. or We had to try something. I found it was ra- rather easy to get sponsors for it and then i then i got nervous and i thought okay we got these sponsors it was a highly graphic graphical campaign uh and factual campaign but i thought it'll, it'll take if this thing works it'll take at least 2 years you got to get the public acclimated you got to get another year to put the pressure on the legislature well 6 months later um they stopped the defunding of higher education it was wildly successful um but that led us to then going to Gates and saying, you know, we just did this. Uh, if we if we had the money, we could do an education lab, and we could really start digging into these education inequities. They funded us. We are now in our eighth year. Community came to us. Paul Allen actually was the first one, and then Starbucks and Rakes Foundation and and Gates. And then we started the Investigative Journalism Fund, which is going great guns.
0: Well, let's just leave it there for right now. My thanks to Frank Blethen, publisher of The Seattle Times, for being with us today. And I really was intrigued by many of his stories. But the last one in particular, public service, voice defunding of higher education that began, what, almost a decade ago. It's celebrating, I guess, about 10 years. So it is a decade ago about the state legislature in not funding higher education adequately. It was in a steep dive for many years until this effort came along. Then, of course, we're going to hear about other arenas that this uh, effort has gotten into, and it's something I never really heard of. On a personal note, I went to Washington State University, and I believe at that time the state was supporting higher education to the tune of about 70%. So that was a pretty hefty subsidy for college students then. And then around that time that he was talking about, around 2010 and 11, I think it had dropped to like 15 or 20 percent. Now, I wasn't a really good student, so I probably wouldn't have gotten any scholarship money to go to school. And I don't know if I could have afforded it with, uh, let's say, having to pay 80 percent of the tuition then. And another note, I have really remembered that the citizens of the state of Washington helped subsidize my college degree, and I've been very appreciative of that. So, anyhow, that's a personal note. I do want to talk about this public service voice because it has been very effective.
2: Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist Is Self-Employment for You? Pre-Flight addresses 8 myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist.
0: The following broadcast was originally aired on June 7th of 2021. Last week, I talked to Michael Nasserian about a book he wrote called I'm Tired, How to Survive and Succeed in Corporate America. Well, he is also an angel investor, and one of those investments has been made into a company called Athera Pharma. And ultimately, what it's trying to do is to find a cure, hopefully or at least delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease and hopefully reverse the process. So let's pick up with the conversation I had with Michael about this and where Athera Pharma is at right now. Alzheimer's disease, that is something that's on the mind of a lot of people. We both had it in our family. We've discussed that. When I talk to the doctors and people about this, it's not finding a cure per se. You just delay it for 20, 30 years, and you've pretty well solved the problem. So having said that, where are we at, do you think, in trying to find, again, not a cure, but something maybe that will really help people who get Alzheimer's disease or dementia to have a fully functioning life?
2: This is a subject that is very dear to my heart. Uh, my, my father uh, was diagnosed with dementia uh, back in 2015 and he uh, actually 2014 and he passed away in 2016 and and I know the devastation that it caused to our family and a, a, a man that strong a pillar of our family became a vegetable and uh, it was just like so difficult for him and for our family to cope with him and uh, so I got involved Uh, into the research and I started studying it and learning from it. And as you also went through that uh, and learned that a large percentage of our elderly are suffering from it and are passing away, dying from this uh, terrible, horrible disease. So I found out this uh, research at the early stages of their uh, startup started from uh, Wazoo this dynamic leader, Lean Kavas, was leading the studies, and then she ended up at University of Washington in Fluke Hall, which is actually I have just a very very positive thing about University of Washington that they are one of the leaders in universities for startup. And uh, I got involved with them, I, I was one of the initial investor, and uh, they are not only working on, a, on, a, on a, uh, a, a medication to stop Alzheimer's, but also reversing uh, Alzheimer's at the early and moderate stage and uh, we're at, uh we are pa- at we we finished the fda uh of uh, the first uh, uh level of study and now we're in phase 2 and it should finish by end of this year and uh from the indications it shows very positive results so i'm very very much uh trying what i saw from my family i want to prevent it to other families and and this is something that is a far-reaching goal because about 80 uh, drugs have come from large pharma's, uh, Johnson and Johnson, Biogen, and all those, and they have not been effective. And uh, then this one is showing a lot of signs, a lot of uh, positive uh, signs in, in the early patients. So we're we're trying. We we're hoping for the best. Its name is Atira Pharma, A-T-H-I-R-A Pharma. And uh, I, I believe Lynn and the team of experts around her are the best chance
0: for us to... My thanks to Michael Nassarian, author of I'm Tired, How to Survive and Succeed in Corporate America. I also really hope that Atira Pharma can come up with, let's say, not so much again a cure but the delay of Alzheimer's disease and the help that it will bring to so many families across the country and the entire world. We've been talking about some serious issues today. Of course, the future of newspapers with Frank Blethen and looking at a cure for Alzheimer's disease with Michael Nisarian. All right critical, important questions, but I've got a bigger question right now. Let me give the setting just for a moment. I live in West Seattle and really enjoy West Seattle. I've lived there for many years, but that's not what I'm talking about. Last week, we had a really nice week with weather, and it was nice to get out on the deck with your cup of coffee and kind of enjoy the morning, listen to the birds tweeting, seeing the little squirrels running on the deck and all that sort of thing. But anyhow, you're sitting there kind of enjoying about two minutes, and it's about, I'd say, 10 after 8 on one of the mornings last week. Anyhow, this is what you begin to hear. Take it away. Yes, across the street, and to be fair, full disclosure, there are people who come by and mow our lawn, and they use a leaf blower too. So it's not only this neighbor, I do it too. The question of the hour, again, we're trying to get to so many different levels and solve problems. Why can't they put a muffler or something like that on these leaf blowers? That is the question of the day. In 1947, the first black man stepped onto a Major League Baseball field as a player. But the struggle to stay there had just begun. Long before the Civil Rights March in Washington, Jackie Robinson played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. General Manager Branch Rickey wanted to entice more black fans to the ballpark. Some players wanted to keep the game white and said they would boycott games when Jackie Robinson was in the lineup. Ford Frick, president of the National League, said he would suspend any boycotters. Quote, I don't care if it wrecks the National League for five years. This is the United States of America. Major League Baseball was now on the path to integration. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Michael Nasserian and Seattle Times publisher, Flank Blethen, for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. And of course, I want to thank that leaf blower. Why do they have to be so loud? Would it cost an extra 5 or $10 to put a muffler on it or some device that would quiet it down? That's all I ask. Anyhow, if you have uh, any comments on that, that you'd like to enlighten me and the audience about the leaf blower or anything else you heard today, You can uh, call the Voices of Experience hotline, which is 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Keep your comments short so I can get it on the air. Unless, of course, you're talking about that leaf blower. I want an in-depth analysis by someone who is knowledgeable. Now, in addition to hearing Voices of Experience like you're listening to right now, if you're listening to it, just to let you know, it airs Tuesdays at 4 o'clock p.m. and Wednesdays at 8 a.m. And you can now listen to Voices of Experience on Kixie Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Speaking of Sunday mornings, there is a show on Kixie that immediately follows this show at 9.30. And it's called Reigniting You with Lisa Downs. And what she talks about is career transitions and gives you insights how to make that transition. So whether you want to stay in the traditional workforce or considering retiring or semi-retiring, again, the show is called Reigniting You with Lisa Downs. Hanging here just for a couple more minutes and you'll hear her first show on Kixie. She's been on KKNW for quite some time. Now, what is this show all about? It's about people with experience, whether it's in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, adventure. But it does have an emphasis also on entrepreneurship. And what drives this show? Why Voices of Experience? I believe that experience is our best coach. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Thanks for listening. As you know, at this point, I do quote of the week, which I will do. But this is a very different quote of the week. I have a binder of quotes, maybe, gosh, 10, 12 pages long, that I've been really writing down over the years that really move me. And I hope some of them move you as well. They range from Abraham Lincoln to Franklin Roosevelt to John F. Kennedy, Mark Twain, Gloria Steinem. The one I want to do today is very special because she is my niece. Her name is Shannon Casey. And um, she's actually coming back from New Zealand this week to spend some time with her family and visit with relatives around the Seattle area. And one of the things is that she has been quite a free spirit. She said something, I'd say, four or five years ago. I wrote this quote down, and I said sometime it will be appropriate to read this on the air as well. And today I'm going to read it. So here it is. Quote of the week, Shannon Casey. Your comfort zone is a place to visit, but not a place to live. So it's up there with the greats. Welcome home, Shannon.